Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, gang, you know, Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your sports action. Bet Online has you covered all the news, scores, and the odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. You head to the website, betonline.ag, or you use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Hey, everybody. Welcome once again, and thank you all so much for subscribing and rating our podcast. We really do appreciate all of your support. Our guest on this episode is Brett Saberhagen, who captivated baseball as a teenage phenom, a right-hander with the Kansas City Royals, who just a year into his career helped KC win its first-ever World Series championship. And Mark, I remember the mid-'80s, a golden time in the game, and Brett and his Royals were right in the middle of all of it. Mike, the I-70 series. It was the showdown, the Show Me State series. So many things. I was 16 years old and wondering, I couldn't wait for the World Series. And here's young Brett Saberhagen shining at the greatest moments. I absolutely loved the remembrances of the way he dominated Game 7. Yes, it was 11-0 win for the Royals. But man, that World Series had so many things involved, and he becomes the MVP of the World Series. Pretty incredible story. Brett, 16 seasons, three All-Star games, a couple of Cy Young Awards, a World Series championship. Man, that is one heck of a resume. When you look back at it, though, what do you consider to be your signature moment? Well, you can't, uh, can't go wrong with saying the... Game seven of the 1985 World Series was kind of a signature moment. 1984 was my rookie year, kind of had somewhat of a decent year. Um, ended up going out the following year, 1985, winning 20 games, um, getting into the postseason. Back then, there was only two teams um, from the American League and two teams from the National League, didn't have any wild cards. So um, we uh, came back from a series against uh, the uh, Toronto Blue Jays, three down, um, and won that series to go on to the World Series. And then we uh, ended up doing the same against uh, the Cardinals. Um, but game seven, coming into that game, coming into the clubhouse, um, most nervous I've ever been before a game. I kind of felt like if we don't win this game, I'm going to let down uh, my teammates, our, our fans, our front office. Um, you know, it, it just seemed like there was a lot riding on my shoulders. And uh yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Saves. Uh, the interesting aspect to that is you said the nerves. And I think all of our listeners would realize, man, you're, you're talking about game seven uh, in the locker room, out to the bullpen, which I think a lot of people don't understand because it's always the appearance on the actual mound. But what were those nerves like leading up to that, that walk out to the, to the bullpen mound and that whole process? What was that like for you? Uh, yeah, it, it was, I think the best way to put it, I kind of didn't feel my feet touching the ground until about the third inning. <laughs> it was that, uh, nerve wracking. Fortunately, I was able to throw some strikes, get ahead in the count. They actually, I, I watched the game for the first time, um, with my wife, Candace, uh, just, uh, probably about, uh, seven, eight months ago, uh, from start to finish actually. And a lot of, a uh, lot of fly balls, a lot of easy outs, uh, pitch count wasn't up. But um, I had a veteran behind the plate, Jim Sumberg, who uh, caught a bunch of Nolan Ryan's no-hitters. So 
had a good guy uh, kind of uh, dictating where we were going and uh, moving the ball in and out. Um, so, but yes, I couldn't feel my feet touching the ground until about the third inning. Was there a thought that maybe you guys shouldn't even have been there after that controversial game six? I mean, you're losing one nothing bottom of the ninth in game six. You get a break with a bad call. You turn around, you win that game to even the series. Outside in, it looked like, man, it looked like the Royals might be playing with house money at that time in game seven. What was your thought? Well, when, when it happened on the field, um, I thought he made the right call. Um, but obviously, when you go back and look at the tapes and the replays and that, um, uh, not even really close. Um, but so, yeah, Don Denkinger at first base gave us a little gift. And then Jack Clark missing a ball by our dugout, a fly ball. Um, and the pitcher's not getting that final out to get him out of that inning. Um, and uh, as we, uh, we went on to win that game two to one, and then game seven, I think they were so frustrated and upset with uh, what had all happened um, the night before. Um, thir 13 to nothing, I believe, was the final score. Um, 11 or 13 to nothing. I, it was kind of funny. I had uh, the same kind of outcome in uh, our championship game in high school. So uh, we played at Dodger Stadium for the championship, and um, we won. And I can't remember which game was 13 to nothing, and the other one was 11 to nothing. So those are two great wins. Uh, Saves, the cool thing, and you mentioned it too, just going back and watching it with your wife, Candace. Uh, I think a lot of us in this COVID situation have been sitting there shaking our heads. But the beauty of it as a baseball fan is you got to see some of those throwback games. And yours was a throwback game. And interesting enough, uh, I was, as a youth, locked into this game. But the beauty of it when you watch it back is you see little details. And one of the little details to me that I think is the coolest, there's two outs in the ninth. And your boy, George Brett, uh, the Hall of Famer, all-star, uh, he comes over to you and has a conversation with you. What was that conversation like? Well, again, it was my second year in the big leagues. Uh, in, in game seven uh, with two outs, he uh, came over and he said, listen, he says, I've been waiting. I've been in the big leagues for, I don't know how many years it was, but I've been in here for a long time. And when that out is made, and it will be made right here, you are not going anywhere other than to, to me. And that, so when the ball went up, it seemed like it took forever for Daryl Motley to actually catch the ball. I was ready. I knew it was an out. Everybody kind of knew it was an out. I was ready to jump up into his arms. And I don't think he could carry me anymore. Uh, back then, I was about 160 <laughs> pounds soaking wet. But um, he kept going, wait, 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 hold on. The ball's not caught yet. As soon as it was caught, then that was the celebration. But, yeah, he, he basically said, you're not going anywhere other than with me to celebrate. Well, Kansas City has such a wonderful reputation as a baseball city. What did it mean to you uh, in that moment and that organization to bring a world championship to Kansas City? Again, I, I, was, I was so young. I had no, uh, no really idea. I, I knew that they were a predominant team that had been in the playoffs. They lost the World Series in 1980. They had a great nucleus of guys, um, veteran and uh, uh, some younger guys that were coming up, Mark Gubazon, myself coming up, Danny Jackson. So they had some good young players in their farm system to help out those veteran guys. And um, it, it, it was just a, a, an unbelievable organization. For, for me coming up as a kid, um, it made it a lot easier because I had Gooby around to help me out. And it wasn't a huge market. It was, a, 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 you know, a, a, smaller market team so it made it easy for us to go on play. they were going crazy just uh figuring out that that win and and the emotion of that after the game uh 
interesting enough, uh, we the great Al Michaels had the call, but you're interviewed by Reggie Jackson in the locker room, uh, and you remember that too. You were honored by uh, by giving the MVP of the World Series. Uh, World Series. What was that like for you, and what do you remember about that moment? Well, uh, it was it was pretty awesome. Uh, back then, they still wore the ABC jackets, right? Um, and and Reggie was still playing at the time, and uh, he was uh, in our uh, clubhouse uh, congratulating us. And um, he's he's been up on that stage many times in his his own uh, own likeness, um, Mister October. Um, but uh, the and the other cool thing was uh, back then you did a you did a little. Uh, uh, congratulations. Um, we got that from uh, the president, uh, Ronald Reagan. So that was pretty cool to talk to the president at the time too, calling in live right after the game. So um, very cool moment afterwards, very honored um, to have uh, helped out our team win. Um, but then the MVP award was, uh, was very special as well. That's a lot to get on one man's plate as a 21-year-old. What an accomplishment, boy, 1985. Let's spin the clock back a little bit earlier. As you pointed out, just your second year in the big leagues when you win the World Series, but your first year, 84, you make the team as a 19-year-old after being drafted in the 19th round in 1982. Did you go to camp expecting to make the club? Walk us through what happened there. Yeah, right place at the right time. There's a couple veteran guys that were hurt, Larry Gura, uh, Dennis Leonard, and... um, I had just my first year. Um, I, I spent time between Fort Myers, which was single A ball and Jacksonville, which was double A finished up at double A. Um, we ended up going to the playoffs in double A uh, coming up a little short. Um, but, uh, yeah, I went to, to camp as a non-roster player, number 53, uh, you know, off on the side and had a great spring training. And like I said, there was a few key guys that were hurt. So I was just actually going into that spring training, hoping to make the triple A squad, um, I got called into Dick Hauser's office um, towards the end of camp, and it was like, okay, got my fingers crossed that he's sending me to AAA, and he said he was bringing me to the big leagues, and it was like, oh, wow, okay, let's, uh, yeah, let's uh, regroup, and uh, he put me in the bullpen to start off that season, uh, didn't have a starting role, and then shortly halfway through, I, I think I might have got my first start in April and uh, against the Tigers, but um, yeah, it, uh, it happened very quickly, 19 years old for the first week of the season, turned 20 April 11th. Um, just, uh, and I kind of remember that first moment coming into the clubhouse first off was pretty awesome, big league clubhouse. And then walking out on the field for our, it was, it was a day before we actually played. We had a practice at Kauffman stadium and walking out there and just kind of looking around at your surroundings and going, wow, this is pretty awesome. Did you freak out, tell family and friends right away? I mean, pinching yourself when you're even told you're going to make the club. Who'd you call first or who, who'd you speak with first? I, I, I talked to uh, a, a few people. First was my mom and my dad, of course, and uh, let them know. Um, and then a, a, a few uh, guys that uh, um, I had been uh, uh, good friends with playing, playing ball uh, growing up and that. So that was, yeah, a pretty cool moment. Um, everybody was very surprised, but very excited and happy for me. Saved so many people that have played this game and been fortunate to put a major league uniform on don't realize like little details and impacts that, that you have. You said you, that workout and looking around the stadium, uh, walking in that locker room and seeing uh, your number and Saberhagen on the back. Do you remember that moment and what's that like, uh, especially on an opening day, how special that is? Well, once I got there and I showed up in the clubhouse, my, my thought to myself was, 
let's let's see uh, see how many years I can get in. My goal was to play four years in the big leagues. That's what I wanted to do. Once I got there, it was like, okay, this is a goal of mine, four years. And then uh, next thing you know, um, it was 18 overall. Two of them were completely washed out because of shoulder surgery. But um, one day longer than I ever expected in the big leagues. And it, it was a dream come true. And I, I wish everybody that would love to play in the big leagues had that one day of moment, kind of like uh, uh, Moonlight Graham. And, and Saves, you, you, you mentioned four. What, why four years? I mean, did that pop into you? Did that feel like that was longevity in that sense? You know, I, it started with me when I got signed out of high school in 1982. I said, you know what? Um, I'm, I'm going to do this for four years, and I'm going to give it everything I got. If I'm not close to getting to the big leagues after four years, um, my second choice on uh, professions would have been a firefighter. So I'd have gone gone uh, and pers- uh, pursued that uh, career. Um, as we talked about, it was a short little uh, one-year stint in the minor leagues and uh, next uh, as 19-year-old coming to the big leagues. So, you know, I, I, you never know how long things are going to last. Injuries can happen. So many things can happen. Um, maybe you're just not as talented as you, uh, as they think you are or you are. So uh, there's a lot of great ball players out there. Um, fortunately, it was a lot longer than four years. Yeah, it's interesting that you you meant, mentioned that because there is there's insecurities that I think a lot of people don't realize that you just don't assume that you got 16 years in after you make that major league debut, but you also said you do it you did it with Mark Gubaza, who was a good friend of yours, and I think that's interesting because he's also on an episode of ours on Major League Beginnings, and he mentioned the same exact thing. You guys were lockstep, and it was easier for you to handle that situation. But we also mentioned George Brett. He took you guys under their under his wing, um, and that was important for you guys. Describe uh, what that meant to you. Well, yeah. So coming up, I think as especially as young, Gooby was twenty one, I believe, and I was uh, nineteen. You know, for the first week, turned twenty. Um, we roomed together. We uh, we were roomed down the road together. Um, and it, it was it made things easier. It was it didn't feel like you were an outsider. Um, and George made sure that we didn't feel like we were outsiders um, by taking us, as you said, under his wing. Um, we made the, the team as non-roster players, and well, I did. Uh, Gooby was a roster player, um, but not expecting to make the team. And uh, we didn't have a place to stay, so we stayed with George for the first month of the season, and he kicked us out of the house after I think I drove him crazy. Gooby was great. It was like... <laughs> I was using his, uh, his Bronco as a vehicle until my, my truck showed up. Um, I was helping myself to his clothes in his closet, anything in the refrigerator. I just go after and needless to say about after two weeks of being there back then, there was no cell phones. Gooby, uh, goes to George. He goes, George, you mind if I call my parents on the phone? Is that all right? Meanwhile, I was just using everything and anything that he had in the house or help myself to whatever. So finally, I think he got tired of, of my act, not Gooby's, but um, sent us off. We got a place down in the plaza, stayed there for the uh, the rest of the season. And then we made the playoffs that season and our lease came up on the, our apartment. So we moved back in with him for another week um, for the playoffs. So, so he was, he was, he did that for a lot of people, not just us, um, a great mentor in his own. And um, we were very fortunate to have that uh, guidance. And I think we kind of did the same thing to a lot of younger players that came up after us. Yeah, it's paying it forward too. Uh, Saves. Uh, everyone understands that George Brett has a reputation of being uh, the guy that put in a performance on the field, but also put a performance off the field, and it's legendary. And I'm not saying anything that 
people haven't read or heard about with George Brett. Uh, but you have to have one of your favorite stories about him because it, it's one of those things that you realize that he just prepared himself and out of bed, he's he's three for five. I mean, that's the way it, it almost perceived. But you had to have a very good story and, and a funny story for George. Can you share that with us? Well, I got a couple. So uh, one would be uh, Mitch Williams um, when he was pitching, a little wild left-hander that I'm pretty sure probably a lot of people remember. Um, uh, a, a, an unbelievable closer in his own right. Um, but uh, kind of the wild thing, um, he came out in the paper um, while he was in Kansas City, basically said, um, you know, if I was a le left-hander, I would never dig in against me because you never know where the next pitch is going. And sure <laughs> enough, George had the opportunity towards the end of the game, that particular series, I, I believe it was either Saturday or Sunday. Um, we were down by a run man on, on base and he comes in and he just grinds his cleats and digs in and sure enough, he hits two run homer. We win the ball game as a walk-off. Um, another one was, uh, I was, wasn't playing. I was sitting on the bench and, um, a security guard came over and said, Hey, Brett, here's a note for George. So again, I was young at the time. I opened it up. I read it. It says, Hey, George, I don't know if you remember me, but I'm such and such. I'm at the game. And, uh, you know, if you can hit a home run for me, that'd be great. I give him the note. Sure enough, his next at bat, he hits a home run and I go, she must've been worth it, huh? <laughs> I might have used a few other words in there, but that was kind of the gist of it. <laughs> Absolutely love that. And, and, and you know what? When we were talking to Gooby, uh, he mentioned uh, Chicago. And Chicago sticks out in his mind, too, because uh, George took you guys both out, is what I remember. And uh, when you guys left the establishment, I'll call it, uh, it was light out. And, and Georgie was still there. Uh, what do you remember in that, that situation? Yeah, I, there's been many. Yes. Um, the ultimate sports bar. I don't think it's ever, I don't think it's around anymore, but anyways, yeah, we walked out, uh, actually a, a buddy of mine, um, uh, Kevin Holmes, who was playing at DePaul university, um, basketball, who we went to high school together with, um, was with us as well. And I put him in a rickshaw with uh, another one of his teammates and sent him back off to DePaul University. He said it was the the, the toughest 20 bucks that guy ever made driving <laughs> two big old basketball players back to the campus on a rickshaw. But George, yeah, of course, I, I, I kid you not, I don't know how many times I've seen it. it he, uh, he can hoot with the owls and soar with the eagles um, because he did it again that day, that next day. He shows up ready to play and just goes about his business. It's a gift, my friends, I'm told. I'm not strong enough to carry that torch. That's amazing. Hey, 167 career wins for you, Brett. Do you remember your very first one? I do. And we, I briefly touched on that in 1984. Um, uh, I think the first start that I got was against the Tigers. Well, the first start uh, and win, I would say. And they had, uh, I think, started off the season 13-0 at the time. And again, they ended up going on in 1984 to win the World Series. They had a great team. Um, yeah, it was, I was very fortunate to have learned a changeup, and that was kind of my equalizer pitch. And I used it quite a bit to lefties. Um, I, I, I would throw it. I felt I had, had confidence in throwing it. If I was behind in the count, ahead in the count. And, um, it was, uh, very good against that left-handed, uh, kind of dominated lineup with the, uh, uh, Detroit Tigers at the time. Sabes, uh, you've already mentioned George Brett, and, and we've alluded to that, but it takes a lot of guys uh, to be able to mentor you. Were there any other guys that stuck out in your early career that molded you into the person that you were, the pitcher that you were on the mound? 
Well, um, he's a good friend of yours as well. Um, he's managing for the Rockies right now. He was actually my mentor. Um, uh, George took us under uh, his his wing, but Blackie, uh, Bud Black, Harry Black, um, just uh, Mr. Freeze. He's got all kinds of great nicknames. Um, he was the guy that I looked at and wanted to uh, be like the way he, uh, he, he went about his work, the way he showed up. Um, we uh, live pretty close together in Leewood and we, you know, ride together uh, uh, on car rides into the, into the stadium from time to time. But he was uh, my, I'd say idol, um, uh, mentor. Um, but he was the guy I looked at um, as a major league baseball pitcher and wanted to kind of replicate myself after. I know he's left-handed, but just his work habits and um, everything that he did. Now, he remains one of our uh, our great friends in the game. If you haven't had a chance to meet Buddy Black, make your way out to Coors Field uh, and check him out as a manager now with the Colorado Rockies. Brett, that 1985 season that we just touched on, so amazing for you personally, in addition to winning that championship as a team. And I know that's the ultimate goal, but you're 21 years old. You go 20-6 and six with an ERA of 287. You win a Cy Young Award. By the way, you throw 235 innings, which it would take a 21-year-old now seven seasons to accumulate. You do it in one. Uh, now, though, from this lens, what significance do you put on winning 20 games in a season? Well, it, it, it's definitely a lot harder nowadays. Uh, not that it was easy back then. Don't get me wrong on that. But just the shorts, uh, short stint of a starting pitcher, you, you got analytics playing such a huge role in this game. I just talked with my buddy, Chili Davis, who just got let go by the Mets, talking about how crazy the analytics is in the game and so many things that are going on. But, you know, the, a lot of these People are not letting their their pitcher go through the the third time in the lineup. Uh, it's just it's crazy. It's it's almost something that you got to fight for if you want to stay in the game um, as a starting pitcher. And a lot can happen. Uh, and here's a good here's a good story. Um, and George would chew my ass. Um, he would come over from third base if it was late in a game. Um, and back then, you didn't have those uh, quality um, specialized. Um, relievers. Um, you had kind of the middle guy that was just kind of would go go through everything. You had a closer, Dan Quisenberry, we had, and he would go three three innings for a save if he had to. But the rest of the guys were just kind of thrown together. They weren't uh, um, studs, so to speak, but they they were good pitchers. So he basically would come up to me periodically and late in a game, if it was close, he'd basically tell me to get my crap together. Otherwise, somebody's going to come in and screw up this game for you. And you're going to get, you know, a no decision. And it sure enough, um, it, it would happen periodically. And a good, another good story, Kevin Apier, when he came up as a young kid, he went five innings, had a lead. I think it was six to three. You know, he came out after five and ended up getting a no decision, was pissed off. And I kind of got in his face and said, listen, if you want to win, you got to finish it off. You know, what you start, you got to finish. If you, uh, now, otherwise you can't be pissed because there's a, it takes a team to, to win, you got to get some runs scored for you. And, you know, everybody has to do their job, but um, that was our mentality back then. It was what you, what you start, finish it off. If you, uh, if you want to have something to say about the winner of the loss. Brett, you have two Cy Youngs uh, to your credit with Kansas city Royals. Is there one year that you felt um, resonated more with you, maybe made the award that much more meaningful? Um, I, I think if you look back on my Cy Young Awards and some of my 
better years, I always had a veteran guy that was just a stud back there. So um, in 1985 was Jim Sumberg, who we talked about um, catching Nolan Ryan, a bunch of no hitters. The other one was Bob Boone um, in 1989 um, and an unbelievable guy in his own right. So I was very fortunate to have some pretty awesome catchers from time to time. Um, uh, Jason Vertex, another one, Charlie uh, O'Brien, who uh, catered to Maddox, um, even when you had Javi Lopez uh, as their their main catcher. Um, so those guys actually make your job a lot easier on the mound because you're on the same wavelength. I'm so glad, Saves, that you you touch on the catching position because, you know, they talk about the battery, but they also need to understand, too, they need to navigate you when you're not at your best or you don't have all the pitches, which we always hear uh, from pitchers that are struggling at times. Uh this is fascinating to me and for our listeners to understand it. Um, 23 wins in 1989, uh, 12 complete games. But what I want people to understand, you had 76 complete games in your career, and you need to rely on your catcher to navigate through those. Uh, what was your mindset? And I'm not talking about today's game, but your mindset to be able to go, you know what? I have to protect our bullpen, but I also need to take the ball and I have to finish my job. Well, I think I took a lot of pride in actually calling my own game. And a lot of guys nowadays don't call their own game. They rely on the catcher to, to put down signals and they, yes, yes. So I think the better the, the outstanding pitchers um, um, have a good catcher and you're on the same, same wavelength. You're, you're in the, uh, in the game together and you, uh, what you want to call is being called for you. So you don't have to shake off. Once you have a catcher back there and you have to shake off two or three times and it's, on, on each batter and that you don't fall into a good rhythm um, and things kind of go haywire. Um, so the veteran guys always seem to know what I wanted to throw in certain situations. Um, I, I love first guys are first ball, fastball hitters. So guys love to hit the fastball, but you got to put in a spot that they can't hit it. First pitch strikes are unbelievable because if you go strike one, you can do whatever you want on that second pitch. Um, a lot of guys nowadays aren't throwing as many first pitch strikes. Um, the guy that threw the no hitter for Baltimore the other day, I think he threw 20, uh, 26 first pitch strikes. Right. Yeah. John means, John means it's, it's yep. unreal. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And that's what you need to do to be successful. You can't work behind in the count. So I was always one of those guys that wanted to get ahead in the count, um, pitch to contact, um, and get those easy outs so you can stay in the game a lot longer. Of, of course, strikeouts are very cool, and they're, they're a lot more in the game now. Back in the day, if you struck out 100 times, you were looking at losing uh, your job and going down in the minor leagues. Now, if you strike out 100 times in the first half of the season, it's all right, as long as you're hitting the home run. So a lot more strikeouts now, but I think there's a time and a place that a pitcher needs to look for a strikeout. It's not on every at-bats. You know, it's fascinating to hear now. You're right, 100 punch outs now and you get a raise. It's a whole different <laughs> whole, diff whole different, atmosphere. You know, in 84, when you broke in, uh, you were the young face from a pitching perspective of the American League. On the other side, though, in the National League, it was Dwight Gooden, who also broke in in 84. Eight years into your career and 110 wins in Kansas City, you actually get traded to the Mets in 1991. What was the impact of that move like? Who told you, and how did that whole thing go down? <laughs> well, uh, it, back then, again, there wasn't a whole lot of cell phones. You had the house phones and stuff. Um, uh, I was, uh, I saw through the paper, our, our local paper in Kansas City. I was in Kansas City during the winter. 
And they, uh, they basically said, uh, because there was rumors about me possibly being traded, um, Herc Robinson came out and said, uh, bread is not going anywhere. Um, three days later, I find out um, through a phone call from him saying that I was traded to the Mets. Um, and the Mets that offseason um, made some big, big deals. Uh, Bobby Bonilla, um, Willie Randolph, Eddie Murray. Um, myself, Jeff Torborg as bringing in the, the manager for that team in 1992. Uh, on paper, we were awesome and um, we just never put it together. Um, we had injuries. Um, we didn't come together as a team. There were so many distractions. Uh, it, it was unfortunate that that happened, um, but joining a team with, uh, with Doc Gooden and then um, uh, Johnny Franco in the bullpen, Sid Fernandez, um, Dave Cohn came in. Um, we had uh, a, an unbelievable um, lineup and staff, but just never really was able to put anything together. Yeah, interesting save. So you guys ended up 75 and 87 that year. Uh, a disappointment, obviously. But were you ready for the Big Apple? Because you, you mentioned earlier, uh, Kansas City, you know, almost a, a small town feel, but also in a major league atmosphere. And then you're going to New York City, uh, where the Yankees and the Mets, they're trying to go. What was that like for you? I learned, uh, I learned, actually, I grew up um, uh, as a baseball player once I uh, got to New York. Um, uh, again, it was very easy to play in Kansas City. You only had a couple of papers. Um, they didn't dwell on the negative. And in New York, um, if things are going well, there's not a lot to write about. If things are going bad, every paper is fighting for the front page press. Um, so yeah, I learned a lot being in New York and, um, as a, as a person and as a player, um, I'll give you a, for instance, um, if guys go to New York and try, or, you know, it could be Philadelphia or any of that stuff. And if you make excuses, um, you're going to get buried, but if you go out and you lose a game two to one, um, and you, uh, you know, you give up, uh, a hit to a second baseman and he makes an error and that causes that run to score. Um, you don't say, well, you know, shit, if he didn't make that error, you would blame it on yourself. I made a bad pitch to get that guy to first base in the first place, and then he stole, and so you throw it on yourself, and that's how you, you got to do it in New York. Go ahead, Swains. What do you got for me, buddy? No, it's great. I mean, I, I think the perspective of, of understanding, there's there, encompassing your talents on the field in New York is interesting, right? Uh, because it has ramifications, the way you speak, the way the media perceives you. Uh, those are tough aspects to realize when you're in New York City. Uh, one thing that I want, and you've mentioned so many guys on that on that team, which I know a lot of reputations in the game are, mean a lot to all of us that have played the game. David Cohn sticks out in my mind. Uh, he was also on that roster. I know you think the world of David Cohn, and, and who doesn't, right, that's ever been in a uniform like him. Um, did he teach you aspects of that? Did that help you? Uh, to be in that same uniform and have conversations with him. Well, funny, um, Coney and I uh, came up in the in the Royals organization together. He was actually ahead of me when I got drafted. Um, and what happened with him uh, during spring training, um, I forget what year it was. It might have been uh, our second year, maybe our first year. Um, he actually was covering home plate on a pass ball. I wasn't in the right position. The guy slid in, took his knee out, had to have knee surgery. So it put him back um, behind me. And uh, I made it to the big leagues before he did. I think it would have probably been the other way around if he was healthy. 
and then uh, he comes up, I think his, his first year up, uh, maybe 85, he might've come up. I'm, I'm not sure of his first yep. year in that. And then traded off to the Mets. Um, I think um, after the 86 season, um, spent uh, spent some good years with the Mets, um, but he was yeah he was a guy that we always talked about, and again we were both uh, about the same age. Him and Gooby were really tight, um, uh, and uh, Coney and I were very tight as well. Um, so you know it was uh, yeah you always talk with your friends about how 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 things go and what to do and what not to do and how how to perceive. Uh, you know, the, the media and the fans and, but being back East in the big cities, um, Boston is another one of those. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to be a part of because it, it really is a, a, a different type of, so I'll give you an example. I go to, uh, after I retire from uh, playing major league baseball, I go a few years later, I go to Dodger stadium for opening day. And it seemed like game 65 out of uh, 162 games. It mm -hmm. didn't seem like opening day. You go back East opening day is like a holiday. It's, you know, that schools, people, kids are getting out of school, you know, it's on TV. It's, it's just a huge day, opening day back East. And it just didn't seem like that out West. No, it marks the beginning of summer uh, mentally for folks who have to deal with, right, that heavy, heavy winter. And that's part of it. And, of course, the game's origin uh, being back east. I'm sure that all lends itself to part of the reason it feels so special back east. You make an all-star team in uh, 1994, one of your four seasons with the Mets. But you also make it a couple of times as a member of the Royals. So three times in all, any of those games stay with you and bring back particularly fond memories? Absolutely. It's funny that the two times that I've won a Cy Young award, I wasn't an all-star in either one of those years. Right. <laughs> Crazy. But, um, yeah. I, um, I, I had uh, 10 wins at the all-star break in um, 1985. Sparky Anderson was um, uh, the manager of that team and decided to go with a few other veteran guys. Um, and I love Sparky. He, uh, he helped me out with, uh, before he passed away with uh, some charity stuff that I was doing down in Southern California, Los Angeles area just a sweetheart of a guy would do anything for you. Um, that was one of the years. The other year was um, 89. Um, I won eight games in August. We went on a four-man rotation and won eight games in August. So that kind of propelled those numbers up to 23 wins that year. I'm not sure what I had at the all-star break. It might've been eight or nine, but anyways, so it's kind of funny, but the one, the one all-star game, of course, um, I, I got to start in 1987 in Oakland that went 13 innings. Um, that was awesome to start a game but i'm gonna have to go with 19 uh what was it it was uh, 90 what, what was the second year in chicago 90 90 1990 yeah. and um so my first big league game i ever went to i was born in chicago heights my grandfather took me to um wrigley field and uh, he was kind of my mentor my dad wasn't around very much um and he coached american legion ball um he was awesome. So he took me to my first big league game at Wrigley Field. He had passed away shortly before that all-star game. So being in Chicago meant a lot to me. I wish he could have been there, but it just so happened that um, I ended up getting the win of that particular all-star game. And I think he had probably something to do with that. Sabes, uh, I think it's fascinating because we sometimes have choices with numbers that we wear on our backs. Uh, you wore 31, 17. 18 twice in your career uh, do any of those numbers signify anything and and why did you choose those um so 
31 was given to me as an uh, as I made the team in uh, 1984. So it was like, thank you very much. Number mm-hmm. is it is. Um, uh, shortly after that, I wore 18. I liked eights um, growing up, and um, so 18 was my high school number. Um, when Steve Balboni uh, was on our team in 84, they gave him number 18. A couple years later, he went to the number that he liked. I believe it was 45. I'm not 100% sure on that. 18 came available. So I asked for 18 after I kind of got my feet wet after a few years. So I wore 18. Um, uh, 17 came uh, uh, about, I think, uh, when I went to uh, uh, the Mets. I had 18 to start off with. Um, and then um, I, it was Strawberry's number. Um, and he had just been traded away before that. My first year with the Mets wasn't all that great. So I said, let me make a little switch here and go to a different number um, as some baseball players are a little superstitious. Anyways, um, went to 17. And then uh, so those numbers just kind of came about 18 uh, or number 17 when I was with the uh, the Red Sox because somebody else already had 18. And um, I, it, it, it was it was a number on my back. It was uh, I was just happy to be there. Hey, yeah, I would imagine it's a heck of a place to be. Hey, you had mentioned superstitions and numbers. Did you have any other oddnesses, quirks, superstitions that maybe we didn't know about? Yeah, I, uh, I, I hated um, uh, wearing the un- my T-shirts underneath my uniform. Um, I, I hated them being wet. So I would change out uh, my undershirt after every inning. I would go in take it off, put a new uh, undershirt on just so it wasn't sticking to me. And uh, especially in the summertime when it was so hot, but that was one of my superstitions of changing out my uniform uh, top. Uh, um, so yeah, I would have to make sure I brought nine with me. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get, so Kansas city AstroTurf in the summer gets warm. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's uh, we had ice buckets um, in our dugout runway for when guys, because back then some of the, a lot of the guys still wore spikes out there and uh, they would get blisters on the bottom of their feet. So they would come in and put their feet in the buckets of ice um, to kind of get those spikes cooled down a little bit after the half inning was over with. Saved 16 years, um, fabulous, fabulous career. And, And you look at it and you're honored in 2005 by the Royals Hall of Fame. Can you take us back to that day and what that meant to you? Well, you know, I, I thought I was going to spend my whole entire career in Kansas City. Um, loved it there. Um, uh, a great, as you see now, you have the alumni that is there um, is well spoken for. Um, a lot of people go there and play and end up living there um, after their careers are done. It's just a great place to raise a family, great community. Um, it just really, uh, you know, that's that's where I kind of almost grew up, you know, and uh, I spent eight years there. Um, and, uh, it was very, uh, very special for them to recognize me as, uh, uh, a hall of famer there, um, and, uh, be a part of, uh, their legacy, uh, forever. So that was, it was off, uh, a very cool moment. You know, another cool moment, and we'd be remiss if we didn't mention it, uh, that 1991 season in Kansas city, you had a no hitter which happens to still be the last one standing right now in the Royals line. We're sure one will happen at some point, but to this point, it hasn't yet. Take us back to that day in August, just a handful of weeks after coming off the disabled list and you're facing the White Sox. And what you remember about that day? Well, I think that team back then, 
I, I wouldn't imagine throwing a, a no hitter. They had a lot of pesky guys that would just put the ball in play. So you would think that the, you would face a team and throw a no hitter against guys that are just big old power hitters. And, uh, um, but the pesky guys always gave me a, a problem. Um, but that particular day, Brent Main was my catcher. We were on the same page with everything. My curveball was working. And I always said, if my curveball is working at the beginning of the game, it's going to be a fun day. And um, yeah, I, I got to the seventh inning and um, I've gotten to the seventh inning before with a no hitter or, or perfect game. And I, I said to myself, self, <laughs> uh, you, you need to take pitch to pitch and whatever the, whatever the hitter is and whatever the count is work pitch to pitch rather than thinking about how many outs you need. Gooby uh, told us also that, uh, and, and you can see it in the video too, when you have that no hitter that, Everyone is mauling you, and Gooby even touched on it with me of that impact that you had on that roster. And I think it's it's fascinating to see how your teammates react to a situation like that. Uh, you saw Brett Main going crazy for you. Also, uh, being able to see your teammates come on. What was that moment like for you, Sabe, so with the no hitter and knowing you made an impact on uh, on history of baseball? Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, Gooby saying that, and, um, yeah, we, uh, it was, it was more of, um, 25 guys in one taxi. Um, you know, especially with the, with the Royals, um, uh, when I got to the Mets, it, it didn't kind of seem like that. Um, a lot of guys were on their own program, but you tried to bring everybody together as a team. So, um, yeah, it was, um, very cool. I never expected to throw a no hitter. And I always say, there's a lot of great guys out there, pitchers that have never thrown a no hitter. You need to be good, but you also need to have a little luck in your side as well. Yeah, Saves moments in baseball are are important. You you had the World Series championship, obviously the no hitter, and then in 2015 the Royals get back to the to the World Series for two years in a row, but they finished the job. What was that like for you and in, in your lens, being able to see these guys, Eric Hosmer's, Salvador Perez? uh Gordon in left field what did that feel like for you well it it was great it was great for the community it was great for the fans it was great for uh you know the small small market teams that that aren't spending a lot of money and uh kind of unfortunately we kind of knew um that wasn't going to last forever although the fans felt like it was going to um you know by the time that some of these guys Haas is now with the Padres and he got his payday and you know uh, a lot of these guys have to move on to get their paydays unfortunately but um 2014 i don't think i missed too many games in kansas city and they actually started off against the angels so i, I being in california i was going went down to anaheim and watched a few games there before they uh went back to kansas city and then pretty much the rest of the time i spent uh, a good portion of that in kansas city watching that whole entire year um then the following year they they lose in game seven in 2014 2015 um, they same nucleus and the same, same, uh, deal. They, uh, they put it all together and took care of the Mets in the championship, uh, for the world series. Um, but it just meant, um, uh, it was 29 years before, uh, that 2014, um, uh, being back in the, in the world series. So, um, that was pretty special for that, uh, city and the franchise. You know, you admiring the young guys now, it's interesting because we hear a lot of young players, especially pitchers, admiring what you did in the game, in particular your work ethic and your ability to try to battle back through serious and heavy shoulder injuries that ended up uh, curtailing your career. 
you wrap it up as a player in 2001 after you're done in Boston, move on to some other projects, uh, and you're putting a lot into the community. How's it going with Sabes Wings? And where's, what's the status there? Because a lot of us have interest in all the things you're involved in. Well, really appreciate that. Yes. Um, so uh, I've always been uh, doing something and it was geared towards youth for the longest time and um, autism, um, juvenile diabetes, that type of stuff. Candace, my wife has been uh, diagnosed three different times and gone through treatments um, four different times because the last one reoccurred. She's clean right now, but she has seen firsthand um, how um, medical financial toxicity can hurt um, uh, families. Um, so first off, dealing with cancer is, is terrible. Um, but uh, sometimes the treatments, she was spending $700 a pill um, for some of her cancer treatments that she went through uh, um, uh, at one given time. She was able to actually afford those and we were able to take care of things, but a lot of families aren't. And it's a choice whether they're gonna pay for their um, medical treatments or they're gonna pay their household bills. So we've created Saves Wings um, to give back to those families in need um, uh, with medical uh, um, financial toxicity going on and helping them get through their troubled times. Sweens, what do you got, buddy? No, uh, uh, you know what, Saves, uh, first off, hats off to Kansas, Candace uh, for uh, you know just being able to fight through all of those aspects and, and that motivates you to continue to help others. How can others help you? I, I think with this Sabes Wings, it's fascinating. Uh, what can they do for you now? We, I, we appreciate that. Um, yeah, we have a big uh, uh, charity event going on in Paso Robles, Central Coast, California. Um, we've got a great board of younger and um, some, uh, uh, some friends in that and all types of walks of life. Um, and we are uh, having an event in Paso Robles the 19th and 20th of September. It's a dinner given away uh, to four different families, um, some financial help. Um, we are given a lifetime achievement away uh, to uh, um, uh, Jay Johnson, who is um, uh, in the alcohol distributed uh, business. Um, we have uh, singer songwriter showing up. We have celebrity chef Rosh, who has been on uh, multiple different, she's one chop, she's been on Hell's Kitchen, she's been on Beat Bobby Flair, but she is also one of the celebrity chefs on the Food Network. Um, and she is creating our dinner for us. We've got a golf event on the 20th. We've got a cooking class with Chef Ross that uh, if you're not golfing, you could possibly be in the cooking class as well. 19th, 20th, go to our website, saveswings.com and learn more. All kinds of sponsorships out there. Um, donations are always very uh, much uh, appreciated and needed. Um, and this is just uh, kind of uh, our first kickoff. It's our first annual event, which we'll, we'll have plenty more, but um, we appreciate you uh, uh, going and checking us out. Uh, Brett, as you mentioned, just a, another quick reminder for the listeners, that's sabeswings.com. One word, S-A-B-E-S, wings.com. Go ahead and support a very good cause. Boy, it's always impressive when someone who doesn't need uh, financially to give back chooses to give back and uses their platform to help other people. So well done by you uh, on behalf of all our listeners. Thanks for kicking back like that. Absolutely. Uh, Candace and I are very... Uh, um, very appreciative uh, of all the help, and uh, she's kind of the brains and the the drive uh, for all of us behind this. So uh, I appreciate you guys uh, giving us a shout out about that. Well, Brett, 16 seasons in the big leagues, couple of Cy Young awards, a three-time All Star. 
and the 1985 World Series champ, uh, by the way, Series MVP with the Kansas City Royals. Heck of a run, heck of a great time being with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Guys, thanks for having me. This has been a blast. Uh, don't be so long in between interviews. Let's get back at it at some point in time. I appreciate you, Sabes. Thank you. You got it, buddy. Always a pleasure. Well, folks, thanks for checking out Major League Beginnings presented by Bet Online. And if you had as much fun as we did, please go ahead, hit the subscribe button anywhere you usually download your podcast from. You pick the platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, whatever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.